0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, the polar podcast for kind of everyone, really. This is the podcast that brings you news and people and information from the coolest and coldest and remotest places on the planet. You're here with me, Jack Buckingham, again. I'll be your host today. And today, my guest is a Antarctic biogeochemist and a plastic scientist from the British Antarctic Survey. She has, in her short polar career so far, been lucky enough to go to both poles, or near enough, and we talk about plastic pollution in polar places, we talk about hot springs in Antarctica, and lots of other good stuff. All right, let's get into it. Okay, people of all genders, please welcome to the stage Kirsty Jones-Williams. Hi, Kirsty. Hi, Jack. How are you? How's it going? How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yes, thank you for being one of our first guests on Polar Times.
1: The pleasure is all mine. Yeah, it's nice to to be talking to a, a friend and also to the, to the Polar Times. It's really quite cool, especially during, obviously, these particularly weird times, any kind of conversations with the the wider polar community is always welcomed it's nice
0: oh yeah conversations with you know humans outside of uh you know my partner and my family is always, <laughs> always, always a bit of a bonus even these yeah. days yeah. okay excellent so um let's start with the first section of the podcast we like are going to start calling the icebreaker so ah. this is where we just kind of introduce introduce yourself uh, tell us who you are and what you do and what you get up to with in your polar lifestyle.
1: Sure. Okay, so I'm Kirsty Jones-Williams. I'm a PhD research student at the British Antarctic Survey and also with Exeter University. And that's through one of the UK's doctoral training partnerships. So it means that I have a university like Exeter, which specializes in the field that I study, which is microplastics, based at um, another institute uh, within the National Environment Research Council, which is the British Antarctic Survey and so my research looks at microplastics in the polar regions, which marries the two together very well I'm in my well I guess I'm in my third year for a little bit longer than usual so I took an interruption at the end of last year to do a project called the Antarctic Sabbatical and so I've been really fortunate in yes the... which
0: I'm sure we'll get into <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah and basically I've just been very fortunate with my research in that I've been able to get out in the field quite a lot over the last three years I believe I've sort of finished my field work now uh, so that's a little bit um, a little bit scary but I've had um, an incredible time I've managed to get up to the Canadian Arctic and down in the Southern Ocean and to Antarctica itself so I've spent lots of different times with different people in different parts of the polar regions, and I feel very fortunate for that.
0: So, I mean, British Antarctic Survey is that—that that, that sounds so glamorous. <laughs> is that <laughs> as exciting? And you've—I mean, like you say, you've been to like both poles, pretty much. That's you know, that's pretty exciting. So, is it—is it—is it everything you kind yeah. of? Expect it to be working for British Antarctic Survey. Is it you know without well?
1: I, I have to admit. It, their
0: it,
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to admit it's been more than I I ever expected. When I was younger, I think I must have been about sixteen, seventeen, and I I read about the British Antarctic Survey, and I was online, and I became a little bit obsessed with the work they did. I, I made this little portfolio of all the projects they had at the time. I'd read about EPICA, which was their big ice drilling project, which was looking at Um, coring ice in East Antarctica and going back in time and looking at the climate record. And I had these portfolios on all of the work that they did. And I used to watch the little webcam of the James Clark Ross ship and see what it was up to and what the weather was like down in the Southern Ocean. And so it was a place that I'd always wanted to work. And I didn't really know in what capacity. Antarctica fascinated me, but I didn't know whether I was even going to be qualified to be able to be a research scientist there, and a PhD student, or whether I was more interested in the logistics and operations, or the public engagement and so, the outreach around Antarctica. Yeah, I always wanted to work there. Yeah, sure.
0: so you, so you were an absolute, you were an absolute stan <laughs> from an <laughs> early age. It seems, uh, yeah, I guess it just it seems like one of those jobs, doesn't it? Like you know, uh, polar research. It's something you see on you know a David Attenborough yeah. documentary, or uh, you know something that I don't know. A very small percentage of the population. Get to do, which I guess is true. But then, uh, so did you set out to university knowing that this was exactly what you wanted? you were like poles are the goal. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're going to get uh, there. Uh, you know, antarctic or but. <laughs>
1: well, that was my initial intention, and I went to uh, University College London in 2010. I started, and that was my goal. And then I, I got a little bit lost in the the hubbub of London, and lost sight of that a little bit. I forgot what it was that I was really there and and excited for. And then it wasn't until I was doing my master's project, I went up to Newcastle University and I did a master's in marine science and policy, effectively. It had a longer title, but that was basically what it was. And it wasn't until my supervisor at the time sat me down and said, if you only have one opportunity left in your entire life to do a research project, to do something that's your own, you manage it yourself and it gets to look at the science of anything absolutely anything to do with marine science what would it be and where would you want to go and I said well, it, hands down it would be the British Antarctic Survey and I'd be looking at some sort of human stressor um, and the influence of that on the marine ecosystem and she said well why the heck are you sitting here send them an email and so I sent them an email <laughs> and um, my supervisor now for my PhD picked up this email and I was able to go down there and and do some work on pteropods, which are these really cool marine snails which build their shells out of the same material as corals. And so they're threatened by ocean acidification in the Southern Ocean. So I worked on that for my master's project and then applied for the PhD project that she was writing. Yeah, I didn't for a second think that I would ever get to actually go to Antarctica. Um, And that was something that it was kind of a goal from a you know, from my teenage years that I lost sight of. And then when it was really put to me, what do you want to do? I was like, okay, no, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to work Madame to try and actually get to to get to Antarctica to understand uh, what threatens it and how and what best we can do to protect it. But there was, you know, there is there was an element definitely of luck of being able to send that email and the right person picking it up and and having the support um, from that supervisor, I think has been something that's. I'm very grateful for.
0: I was going to say, you make it sound so easy. Just send one little email and then there you go. Master's project, PhD.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's me paraphrasing. I sent maybe 20 or thirty different emails to different institutes because I was, I just Mm -hmm. desperately didn't want to get rejected from the British Antarctic Survey. And my theory was if I don't send them an email, then I can't get rejected. So I just put it off and sent emails <laughs> to all the other polar institutes in the world I could think of, and then I finally sent sent the one to them.
0: <laughs> That's some that science logic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. That's quite interesting. So you went to, so you studied in London and Newcastle, and yeah. then. So would you say you were like more of a city person? Because I wouldn't really have thought that you no, know somebody <laughs> not at all in... so, oh the opposite. Okay, yeah, I'm um, so interesting. I'm,
1: I'm from North Wales, and basically the appeal of London was. Um, it was diversity. It was, it was to be surrounded by, you know, it's called the global city and it was to be surrounded by people right. with different yeah, yeah, opinions yeah. And, and different backgrounds. And I was a little bit, yeah, even I think though we can
0: all say the appeal of the bright lights. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so
1: I went there, but immediately started, yeah, missing the sea and the countryside and was very grateful that I had a degree in environmental sciences, which has always taken me, outside of the city I didn't think I would ever do a PhD which is really interesting for me because I just I didn't think I was cut out for it necessarily Uh, I think it requires a lot of independent working and I've always been somebody that likes to I do like to do independent work for sure but I also like to feel like I'm part of something bigger like that kind of almost like that startup atmosphere but actually what you get in polar science in particular is that feeling of being part of something bigger and that's what you get when you go on a ship you know everyone's there for the same reason everyone has a different job but everyone is there for ultimately the same reason which is to collect data and to understand antarctica and and the southern ocean or up in the arctic to understand it better so actually i do get that from being a phd student in the polar sciences
0: So let's talk about um, a bit more about your research now and what you actually uh, focus on. And mm-hmm. then I guess where that's led you and, uh, you know, the experiences you've had as a result. So you are a microplastics, you're focusing on microplastics for your PhD. Yep. But uh, I read in your little bio on the BAS website that you really, a, that's marine biogeochemistry. So <laughs> can you, for for me and for everyone listeners, yeah. what is biogeochemistry? Is that just... Everything. Well (laughs) Is that just science?
1: (laughs) It basically sounds like that. Yeah. So marine biogeochemistry is basically trying to understand how the biology of our oceans interacts with the surrounding chemistry. And what that really ties in nicely is how the marine biology of our oceans interacts with humans because ultimately the impact we have on our environment is chemical. You know, we impact the temperatures. We impact the acidification of the waters through the research that I'm doing. I'm looking at the impact of this crazy pollutant that's got over 80,000 different polymer types and different combinations of plastics and additives and things added to it. And it's to understand how that pollutant interacts with the marine ecosystem. And I'm particularly interested in that surface level so that uh, that kind of upper 200 meters of the water column where you have organisms like Antarctic krill, which are a key species in the Antarctic food web. And if we can understand the stresses and and how they impact the, the health of this animal, we can ultimately kind of understand how that might have knock-on effects for the rest of the marine ecosystem there. And when you're looking at plastics, the thing that I find really fascinating is that you're not just looking at this one stressor in isolation, like how does it impact the health or the swimming behavior and, and ultimately the survivability of these animals, these very small al- animals at the base of the food chain, such as Antarctic krill and pteropods and things like anthropods, which are other little sea crustaceans that feed the base of that food chain. It's understanding how plastic interacts with all of these other stressors. You know, in in some cases, perhaps it binds to other pollutants in a particular way, which might increase the uptake in these animals. And so my research goal going into it was quite broad and quite a big undertaking, as I'm sure most PhD students begin with this very big question and go, hang on a second, that's way too big. I can't answer that. I can't even scratch the surface of that. I need to narrow it down a little bit. So My work's gone from kind of trying to understand what's the general impact of microplastics on zooplankton, so those animals existing in the water column in the polar regions, to asking, okay, well, firstly, what actually exists in the polar regions plastics wise? What do we actually know? Because when I started in 2017, there was actually just a handful of studies that had been done, and a lot of it was citizen science. So it was really about kind of going back to basics and saying, well, let's actually go out there and collect some samples and see what we're finding. And actually, are we collecting samples in the right way? And that's been a lot of the, the last three years, really, has been those environmental samples and how to collect them and analyze them properly so that we're telling the right story. We're giving the right information to people. Because Ultimately, policymakers want to understand: Is the plastic around Antarctica, and if there is plastic, is it a threat? Yeah, you've got to kind of strip it back and go back to basics and be
0: like, well, what do we find? Interesting. So, um, a few questions from <laughs> the top of uh, that session. Um, <laughs> um, firstly, when you say the pollutants so you're studying the—is that the plastics themselves, or is that is that something else, some kind of like chemical?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm talking specifically about plastics, but something that I'm interested in is looking at. This, what we call like this multiple, multiple stressor environment. So trying to understand not only whether these microplastics are being ingested by Antarctic krill specifically, but how they might interact with other stresses in that environment. So for example, I designed like a, an incubation experiment on the last expedition I was on where I was looking at how microplastics might interact with mercury. We know mercury is a biomagnifying, um, pollutant. We know that Antarctic krill and just all euphazids really they they build up a lot of this mercury in their system, and so because we have huge krill fisheries, we, you know it does become a public health issue, but also it's it's just a very interesting complex um, chemical situation to try to understand. Well, does the mercury scavenge the plastic and use it? So we know that mercury, for example. Hooks onto clay and, and other particulate. And we know that in doing that, you can transport mercury, um, through water column. Yeah. So this clay acts as like, as like a vector for mercury. So microplastics exist in that kind of particulate realm. They're not looking, me specifically, I'm not looking on like a molecular level. I'm looking at this particle. So does the plastic itself? scavenge the mercury and is that actually a a form of removal of mercury from antarctic krill if they are to ingest it and then also we know that antarctic krill or we hypothesize that antarctic krill lose mercury when they lay eggs so perhaps is another way of losing mercury from the system by ingesting microplastics are we reducing the amount of mercury that's being taken up and restored and it kind of seems like a really abstract question but actually we know so very little about the the mercury cycle once it becomes a part of the ecosystem. And similarly, we know very little about actually the pathways of microplastics. And so if we want to consider the pathway of microplastic, we have to understand how it interacts with these other things which are in the the system where those Antarctic really exist. And so I just find it, it's really like fascinating, slightly slightly bizarre question to be considering but I think it's really important to understand the more realistic environment that we're looking at when we talk about plastics
0: being a pollutant in this part of the world. When you say when you say microplastic, yeah. what kind of size what kind of size particles are you talking about? Yeah, obviously small enough to be ingested by krill. How yeah. big a krill? <laughs> so
1: krill, I mean, to an adult size krill could be about fifty five mil, so about yeah, five and a half centimetres. Microplastics, uh, the phrase was coined, I think, back in like 2004, and it was initially used to describe any plastic less than five millimeters in size. And, and the reason for calling it anything less than five millimeters in size was kind of thinking that okay, less than this size, we know that it's biologically available, so it's it's kind of attractive as food. It's, it occurs as the same sort of size as the food that uh, zooplankton and organisms at the base of the food chain are eating. So we know that if any animal or organism is going to be eating these microplastics, it's ones that support that food chain. And that's really important. But actually, in the last few years, there's been calls for being a little bit more restrictive with the way that we define microplastics. So microplastics actually being those less, I think the most recent paper I read suggested less than 1000 millimeters, because in, in reality, it's that less than yeah. So 1000 micron, less than that is a microplastic. Less than a micron is a nanoplastic. And when we talk
0: about nanoplastics. Okay. Sorry. And how big is a micron? Not so, <laughs> just okay. really. Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: a, so, how many
0: microns? so there's a thousand microns in a millimeter. Yes. Is that, is that
1: right? Yeah. So when wow. we talk okay. initially, when we talked about microplastics, we were talking about five millimeters and less. And now we're talking one millimeter and less because it's that one millimeter and less that is truly kind of edible. Let's say in terms of size to the zooplankton
0: and then and that... why do these zooplankton swim around eating plastic is it purely by accident or are they just <laughs> well that's,
1: yeah that's that's also that's quite an interesting question because it depends on the way that the zooplankton feed you know some zooplankton are very passive you have things like uh salps and jellies which will just create um i guess they'll create not a current, but they just suction.
0: And just suck yeah. everything in.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah, that is that was my suction noise. Yeah, that was a very good noise. <laughs> uh, Thanks, that's yeah. exactly mm-hmm. what
1: I imagine it sounds like. Um, so yeah, you have guys like those that will um, take up microplastics very passively. Grill, for example, create little currents. Almost if you can imagine yourself swimming in like a doggy paddle sort of fashion. That's
0: oh, you can of- picture them, can you, with their little kind of fingers, yeah. like their little combs, like combing. Everything exactly. Out. Imagine yeah.
1: us with I don't know maybe uh creating that kind of current around little uh like plum sized particles and just popping okay. away at them perhaps if they happen to you know if, if we're put into a pool of plums and we say hey these plums are really good for you and they'll make you strong and healthy and then you're doggy paddling your way through those plums that, but oops there's a few ping pong balls on the way it's kind of difficult,
0: right okay to,
1: uh yeah to determine what's what and you just consume what you consume
0: um okay and then, but then that's, yeah, as you say, that's the problem because, um, you know, the fish eat the krill and then the birds eat the fish and the whales eat, and the whales eat the krill as well. Yep. You know, it's this whole food web situation. So, uh, as you say, krill is this keystone species, right? That's yeah. the right phrase?
1: Yeah, keystone species, exactly.
0: Right. So, that's why it's a problem. And does it then, it doesn't, does, uh, yeah, if they've ingested a piece of plastic, does that kill them dead straight away or does that just stop them, does that fill them up without giving them... Uh, enough nutrients. What's what's the deal? Is that, I suppose that's part of this multi stresser thing. Yeah, we're so that's
1: about. that's that's a really good question because it's really what we're looking at when you're designing these experiments. So often, when um, scientists in the past have done what we call ecotoxicological—a long word for basically looking at how nasty things impact um, human beings and other animals—when um, people design those experiments, they ultimately want to see what the kind of the lethal dose is to understand okay well what's the threshold what's really dangerous to these animals but when we're looking at microplastics to be realistic that lethal dose is immensely high something you would not find in the environment what we're looking at are these sub-lethal effects so these things which impair the animal's ability to survive uh a hel- and have a healthy life you know to avoid prey to be able to reproduce um, and have healthy eggs and in the case that we're talking so it about
0: makes them really weak if yeah. they've eaten loads of plastic they're less likely to survive exactly yeah. you're
1: talking about yeah. that nutritional value and if you just imagine replacing one of your meals a day with a, a plate of plastic then you can imagine one that might have obstructive effects in your uh, in your intestine you know in your gut that's going to have mm-hmm. some serious problems ultimately you're probably going to be able to poop it out if you're eating lots of small bits but that's still having an impact on the nutritional value of your food. You're not getting what you usually would, and that's basically what we're looking at: these long-term effects that occur because the animal's not getting the the food that it needs.
0: Okay. Now, interesting. Now, you would have thought, you know, Southern Ocean, Antarctica, plastic wouldn't be that big a problem, is it? Really? Is there a lot of plastic in Antarctica or in the Arctic? You've been to both, right? So, yeah, you know, these places are super remote. Is it? Is this a big problem?
1: (laughs) Now, this this is something that I think is a really tricky one to navigate because it depends on people's perspective of what a big problem is. Depends on what field of research that you're in. So, the fact is that the fact we're finding plastics, which we know have travelled from a very long distance, that have broken down within the marine environment, or perhaps they've been, or perhaps they've come from nearby ships or even research bases whatever it may be we know that microplastics are existing in the polar regions and that's a problem in itself point blank it doesn't matter um what concentrations they are we know that it resides there and it resides there for a long enough time for it to be consumed by animals um that live and rely upon um the health of this uh, environment so but the concentrations we're talking about are by and large very low um, where where we find differences are where you look in when you look in the ice. So, for example, there was a um, a paper that came out a couple of years ago, and that found ten thousand particles per liter in Arctic sea ice.
0: Wow, that's okay. a
1: huge amount, and I mean that's comparable to concentrations that you're finding, you know, on populated coastlines in uh, in Asia. So these are really really high concentrations, but they were found in ice so it's and that's the kind of the complicated thing of of looking in ice influenced waters when you take a sample from the seawater you're taking such a small subsample and it could vary significantly depending on whether you're near whether you're near ice what time of year you're collecting it whether it's you know you've got recent seasonal sea ice melt or whether you've had recent refreezing so fact is we are finding plastics in the polar regions we understand a fraction really of what those concentrations are like in terms of how they differ in space and time because
0: sure we're taking so it's like we're such. looking through a little keyhole yeah, of what's actually like, out there yeah anyway.
1: so i feel like it's so important that because we're fine, you know, in biology, we take what we call the precautionary approach. If,
0: yes, if important. You, yeah. <laughs> and if
1: you find something which you know is a threat, which you know, you know, we know, for example, many, um, many plastics have BPA. in. we know that plastics have been mass produced since the 1950s. And therefore, they've been entering our oceans since the 1950s. You have this. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 300 million tons of plastics in the ocean. And.
0: This, wow that's a staggering figure isn't it that boggles yeah, my mind every time yeah you, you, can't, you like,
1: can't get your head around it it's a crazy amount so we know that there's all this old plastic that exists where we had different uh, environmental regulations so we had different chemical, different additives to them which we know are carcinogenic we know that are endocrine disrupting so i think it's so important that when we look in the polar regions we understand that we're also looking at these kind of time capsules potentially of plastic which have been trapped in the ice unless we see sea ice melt, that we're potentially having this release of plastics which has been captured over the last 50, 60, 70 years. There's a lot we don't know, but I can guarantee that it shouldn't be there. It's our responsibility to understand what impact that will have and how to to prevent sort of any increases in uh, plastic pollution in this area.
0: Sure, and it's like, you know, if we're finding plastic, I guess, in places like Antarctica and the Arctic and in polar places – then you know how bad is it everywhere else? Where, exactly. <laughs> where uh, it's a it's a good um, kind of barometer, isn't it, of um, of everywhere else? Yeah. Yeah. You said you said just before you said you can you know that these plastics have come from far away. How are you able to tell that, especially with something so small that you know it, it won't have a, a brand label? Yeah. <laughs> on it.
1: So so with microplastic, I mean, this is only again. There's been so much. I think actually, in part perhaps because we're looking in these remote regions and we're we're finding microplastics in such remote regions, we've been forced to kind of think, okay, well, in what ways could they be transported through our oceans? And how do they perhaps reside in the water column for such a long time? So for example, we're finding microplastics that are denser than seawater still in the water column. We're finding microplastics that are lighter than seawater on the seabed. So we know that they're residing in the water for a very long time, either to be sort of resuspended or to be biofouled, so to have um, lots of sort of microbiology and, and little miniature communities growing on these light plastics to make them dense enough to sink. We know that they are coming, or, or they're at least existing in the water for a long time. There are models as well. So, one of the things that we've realized, particularly in the polar regions, to understand. Why we might be finding microplastics in larger concentrations than you might expect. So, for example, actually, let's let's wheel it back a bit. A couple of years back, there was the paper by your supervisor, actually, Kath Waller, and um, some colleagues at British Antarctic Survey, basically posed the question: Okay, well, what do we know about microplastics around Antarctica? You know, how many studies have there been done? What are the concentrations suggesting? And What would we expect to see based on the numbers of shipping vessels going there and the research bases? And it was found that the concentrations from the small samples that they took, but the concentrations that they found, a 100,000 times higher than you would expect based on the populations, uh, the temporary populations, obviously, at the research bases and the ships that operate in and around Antarctica. So that's suggesting that either plastics are existing for longer periods of time, in the water or they're traveling from afar so we're working with physical oceanographers now and those are the people that really look at the the ways in which um if you imagine like a parcel of water a single parcel of water and how that moves through the ocean and how that interacts and creates different currents and waves so we we're working with physical oceanographers to understand how particles these microscopic particles can be moved from different parts of populated coastlines and potentially get um, into the Southern Ocean. And previously, what was really interesting and why Antarctica is the way it is, um, we have this unimpeded flow of air in the atmosphere and, and, you know, obviously unimpeded um, ocean current around Antarctica, which keeps it isolated and it keeps it cold. And this current around Antarctica, the polar front, was perceived to be this sort of theoretical boundary to plastics. But we know that plastics and other organisms can raft on kelp. We know that seabirds can migrate, obviously, easily across this, this border because it's nothing to them because they, uh, you know, they're up in the air. So we know that plastics can get across this border. We know that plastics are existing for a long time there. Um, but again, we have, we just don't have enough, I guess, what you call a, a time series, um, to understand how these pathways of plastics exist around Antarctica.
0: Mm. And is it the same in the Arctic? So what you're saying is Antarctica is not as pristine as we might like to believe. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are microplastics everywhere, yeah. and it's the same in the Arctic.
1: Yeah, I mean the Arctic's a very different, uh, a different beast. um You don't have like, like I was talking about this sort of unimpeded flow of water around a single continent. That's you don't have that in the Arctic. It's a very different place, but it's cold and it has ice, and we know that ice can potentially be this. Sort of dead end for plastic unless it's then released again through ice melt
0: um right like you said that's ten thousand microplastics per liter yeah. from ice or something yeah, yeah was that from the arctic so, so that
1: was up through, yeah, uh, by Svalbard. and actually a lot of the work that's done up in Svalbard there's been a, obviously a lot of research uh, but there's been an awful lot of citizen science work as well and and just the the studies that you see online of, of the beaches in Svalbard. It's it gets very busy and tourism was one of the the major threats the sort of direct point source pollution or, or it's, yeah one of the major threats to point source pollution in the Arctic is is tourism and so it's about sort of sustainable and sensible tourism that educates the people that go to these places and these fascinating incredible remote locations to for them to kind of be a part of the research uh, that protects that environment ultimately, because we know that there are an awful lot of bigger, what we call macroplastics. So it's very visceral. You see plastics on the beaches there in Svalbard and that we know, for example, in the Canadian Arctic, that there's this big conversation at the moment around the opening up of the Northwest Passages with increased sea ice melt. And what's it going to mean? for, for a, a whole suite of different stresses but also what does it mean for plastic pollution when we start to increase the amount of shipping traffic um through these through these waters
0: the disciplines between microplastics and macroplastics, which are the big bits that you can see and just ocean debris in general yeah are they quite are they quite different disciplines or are they is it harder to inspire people to care about microplastics because they're you know you can't see them
1: I think one of the things that's been very helpful with microplastics is that when there was the conversation around cosmetic beads. and um, yes, so my- i the bead yes. in the UK. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this the scrubbers that you have in cosmetics and in facial washes and toothpaste, people could actually physically see what a microplastic was and they had some sort of, it, it, it makes such a big difference when people can sort of tangibly see what something is and understand how it would have an impact. So when often when you're talking about microscopic things, um, then people don't tend to care so much. But because, particularly in the UK, there was this conversation around um, my- microplastics in toothpaste and facial scrubs, there was this sudden kind of, oh, this is a really
0: obvious thing it's, it's, this is a thing like, this, yeah.
1: this, is, super obvious. <laughs> this is
0: another thing to yeah. worry about
1: but it was also one of those things which was like okay well it's also it also has a really obvious solution we stop using plastics in facial scrubs full stop and, th- and that's a very it had a very easy solution and i think people engage more with something if they know it's not hopeless um
0: sure yeah
1: and i think i I think with um plastics in Antarctica and plastics in the Arctic one of the things that's been really interesting is that when people suddenly go oh hang on a second the behaviors I have at home and the things that I decide to purchase whilst it shouldn't it you know the onus shouldn't be solely on the consumer and at each individual person it should pro- it should be that we have practices in place and policies in place which mean manufacturers can't produce something that harms our environment that should be the way it is but sadly that's not the way it is and so when a person sees that the decision they make and the products that they buy potentially ends up making all its way to antarctica or the remotest island you know henderson island in the pacific that's horrific to know that you could be contributing to something like that and i think as soon as they realised that they could make a really quick and easy change i think then people did start to engage with microplastics a little bit more
0: This next segment, we, uh, we like to call uh, Fieldwork Fun Times. So, you know, if a lot of our guests will have had these fabulous, very fortunate experiences in polar places. And uh, Kirstie, you were saying before that you have been not only to the South Pole, but also basically to the North Pole, which as, yeah, a, so- as a polar PhD student myself, I have to just... Uh, tell our dear listeners that that is not that normal. <laughs> You've done very well, may I say? Kudos, round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm very, well, very lucky. How did you? How did you get to do both? I suppose. Oh, and uh, also, uh, which which one's better? <laughs>
1: ooh, 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 that's divisive. That's what would say. <laughs>
0: polarizing.
1: Wait. Um, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh That should go in your punny bit. No. Um. So I yeah, would say yeah. my very first expedition was to. Like I said, I wasn't supposed to get to Antarctica. So I was actually, I was supposed to go around, sort of around South Georgia and stay strictly on the ship. But as is often the case with polar research, weather will dictate everything. And it was a couple of weeks before Christmas that we were basically told, okay, the ship's having to come back from its latest expedition and it's going to pick you guys up in the Falkland Islands. But the problem is that it wasn't able to get to Antarctica because of the sea ice. Hopefully when, and they need, you know, with the British Antarctic survey, the ship doesn't just do ship-based research, it does cargo drop-offs. You know, the people in the bases there, so Rothera and Halley, they need food, they need supplies, and they rely upon ship visits on, you know, not regular basis. So they, they, they need these um, deliveries, particularly um, at the start of their summer when the ice should have melted. So each year that changes and it just so happens that it was on my first expedition that we had to make a detour and go ashore to Adelaide Island in Antarctica, where Rotherer is, which was incredible because it was always up in the air. And, and that was kind of a decision made whilst we were at sea. It's like, OK, we're going to Antarctica, um, which was mind blowing to me. Um, having all, <laughs> That's
0: honestly. so nice. In yeah, dream um, come true. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and you're so, right.
0: that's totally the best thing isn't it how <laughs> unpredictable it is but then it can work in not in your favor as well <laughs> yeah. certainly
1: not working your favor so, um, and i've had yeah experiences
0: for the opposite um rothera is a british antarctic survey base actually in yeah. antarctica right so adelaide island you said so that's like on the um it's on the tail isn't it the peninsula you can yeah, yeah a, that's a really yeah, a good way of antarctica, describing it. it yeah the pointy bit of yeah. antarctica
1: so on that western antarctic peninsula bit you've got some really cool wildlife and you have what I did realize actually was when we got to Rother was that elephant seals are goofy and lazy as heck the only you know the the sounds and smells that they make are they're less cute than (laughs) they seem uh they seem on pictures yeah
0: yeah, they're just very
1: (laughs) loud and burpy and smelly and um just they've got a lot of character and then I would say penguins are fairly sassy uh we got to stop off at a place called Deception Island, which is um, caldera, so like an old volcano, and it still has uh, geothermally heated waters. So, oh wow,
0: incredible! <laughs> which was so really, like, yeah. are there like hot pools that you can like go in?
1: Jack, there's supposed to be. You know, you're supposed to be sensible enough to figure out where exactly the warm water is, and to be able to if you want to get in there and have a little swim so that was our intention we we got ashore mm-hmm. and we went for a hike and then we thought oh, you know we'll go for a little swim in this cold caldera that's really cool to do and one of our friends convinced us i don't know if they must go cold bathing on a regular basis but managed to convince us that they would found a hot spot so we ran in gung-ho and quickly discovered we were not in heated waters at all oh God. Um, so but, yeah. you're actually in antarctic water
0: yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, shocking but yeah it's super super um Amazing experience to sort of be splashing around and having, um, like sassy gen twos and chin straps honking at you. Like, you know, what are you doing?
0: Um, oh, yeah, incredible. Yeah, <laughs> they're super. Um, are they like used to people or like not used to people? So they're kind of, you know, they're... the penguins and the seals, they don't so much mind you being there. Is that the case, or is it?
1: Yeah, they kind of. Um, I would say with penguins, they they didn't mind so much, but we. But yeah, no, i mm-hmm. certainly. I've been to South Georgia, and um, there's the fur seals there. They don't particularly enjoy humans being around, in my experience, anyway. So you know, you give them a wide berth, and you're respectful. It's their environment at the end of the day, and you are the visitor. Um, but I don't think I've ever been quite as nervous as I have um, walking around King Edward Point uh, with fur seals and they they do when they show their teeth they're quite they're quite scary and they're surprisingly agile and fast on land which was you know as me and my steel toe cap boots not agile on or fast on land even on the best of <laughs> days so put me in steel toe cap boots and i'm just not at all but i would actually say my favorite wildlife experience was the polar bear in the canadian arctic
0: wow okay that yeah just... so, you, so you've been north as well I'm um... very jealous yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As is everyone listening so you went so can't so you in canada the canadian the canadian arctic like you say yeah, yeah. so now, what were you doing up there where were you staying slash living well,
1: do you know what this is this is where i would advocate even if you are terrified of public speaking or just conferences. And and I would say that conferences are the most important. Obviously, we're having to operate in a very different way um, in these kind of COVID and and I imagine going forward post-COVID times, because conferences are the most incredible way to connect with people. And I think as we move forward, we'll probably find really great ways of doing that digitally but it was through going to a conference in my second year of my phd and presenting some work a colleague had collected samples the previous year on one of these expeditions on the canadian cruise with amundsen science up there and they had collected these samples with a net so we often use like a
0: we call them so these are plastic samples again yeah, yeah. or plankton samples yeah
1: so they yeah so they were plastic samples which was basically involved um, throwing a net over the side of a ship and and towing that like laterally um, so along the sea yes, surface.
0: It's, it's high tech plastic samples.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so then getting those samples and analysing them and I was presenting the data from that and it just so happened that a person who had also been on that cruise, who was the head of the Z team, which sounds really cool. It's the zooplankton team. The Z team on the Arctic cruise, they happened to have a space and they said, hey, do you want to collect some more samples and come on the ship? Oh, nice! And I was like, uh, yes, please. And that was oh. a month, but that was, that was quick. So that was like a month before, no, maybe two months I had to sort of do all my, um, security checks and get everything sorted. Yeah. And then I headed out in the, August September of my second year doing my PhD and we went up we flew to Quebec and then we flew to Resolute Bay up in the north and that was what was a real surprise that no one had told me about was that when we got to Resolute Bay we couldn't get directly onto the ship and we had to take a helicopter oh, wow. and that was awesome because they basically they said who hasn't been on a helicopter before and I was like oh I've not been and so they put me at the front, and that was yeah.
0: That was... So again, so this is science in a nutshell, isn't it? So It's just like oh, yeah. that freak, opportune, random statement that someone just casually throws out to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow, yes, please, I would like to go to the Canadian Arctic to sample. <laughs>
1: yeah, and and the great thing about the like doing polar work is that often the, the most. You know, you just want to get you want to get samples from the most remote places you can and and everywhere and anytime you can get out there you want to do it and it's so the difference between kind of expedition planning and field planning and field work brain compared to getting back to the lab and being here in the you know in for me in the uk it's so different it's so high adrenaline spontaneous and i've got to have plan a through to c and and then you come back to the uk and it's a much slower pace and i it's very, very different. Um, it's weird yeah. to adjust
0: to. Okay, okay, Fab. So you don't have. To, okay, so you don't have to answer your pol- that polarizing question previously posed. But were there, were there like, I suppose, what's the, were the most notable differences between your Arctic and Antarctic experience, apart from, you know, obvious things like the people?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest difference is Antarctica, the continent itself. Like when you're in Antarctica, it's it's otherworldly it's honestly the most foreign landscape it's so far removed from any other place on the planet and it feels different because the arctic it doesn't feel as fast you know like when you're standing on the antarctic plateau then and you know you've got like a thousand miles of nothingness and no people until you hit the south pole and then you know in all directions you've got you might have like little sprinklings of research researchers but effectively there's no one there and that for me it was like a really bizarre experience of of feeling the most connected to humans and humanity when i was down in this most remote place because i knew that my survivability depended on other humans it was no one there i I needed other people to be able to survive there um that's surreal yeah so surreal and then that's and i think antarctica holds a very very special place in my heart for just the reason I was interested in Antarctica when I was younger and I got interested in the British Antarctic survey was this concept of the Antarctic treaty. Uh, there was this kind of utopia, even though it's not as, it's not as black and white as that. Um, and obviously there were specific reasons why the Antarctic treaty came into place, but really, you know, the, the founding principles of the Antarctic treaty is to maintain this entire continent for peaceful, scientific collaboration and that to me was like this beacon of hope in this very confusing messy world and so antarctica will always like it doesn't matter how amazing the experience was in the arctic antarctica will always hold this kind of like
0: number one one um and so then that leads me on to i just have to ask about your um because you recently even possibly last year was it you went to the actual south pole yeah the yeah the red and white stripy <laughs> yeah. hole in the, in the ground that's in the exact middle of Antarctica. I'm absolutely sure it is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Why don't you tell me about that whole uh, experience?
1: Yeah. So that was something called the Antarctic sabbatical and, um, it was with Airbnb. So that sounds weird and bizarre and a little bit like...
0: Pretty, <laughs> a pretty good partner.
1: <laughs> yeah. like, uh, hmm, how do these two connect? Um, yeah,
0: yeah. They don't have many Airbnbs down there, do No,
1: they? and there. <laughs> I stand by the fact there isn't a single one, and there will never be, um, <laughs> I hope. I don't see that happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They were pretty adamant about that, which is a good thing. And, but because the the idea behind the Antarctic sabbatical and this program was, they had this, uh, I guess, this tagline called "traveling with purpose," and it was about kind of connecting people to this bigger idea of, okay, if you travel somewhere, and and for me, it depends on how you use Airbnb. But for me, when I've used Airbnb, it's allowed me to stay with somebody who lives in the local area, and it's allowed me to learn more than just sort of the usual touristy stuff that you do in a particular area and it's allowed me to connect to the people that I go and visit and the place and understand where it is that I'm going and have a better cultural exchange and so they wanted to promote this idea of traveling with purpose and when you go somewhere what is it that you can give back to this community and so I imagine somewhere in a boardroom um, they'd had this one successful one in, in Italy and they're like oh where can we go to next and they'd said Antarctica and they all laughed it off and then CEO went, no, let's see if this is possible. And so when they started really trying to understand, okay, well, what can we do that's actually useful and isn't just, oh, we're taking five people to Antarctica to have a jolly. What can we actually do to give back to the community? And obviously, Antarctica doesn't have you know permanent inhabitants, but it has the research community. It has the people that are there trying to understand how it works and how we can protect it. So it's like, okay, well, how can these five people give back to that? And that's what it, it, by and large, a lot of the tourism is in Antarctica. It's about citizen science and it's about education on, OK, well, you have this privilege to go to this fantastic place. We're going to make sure that you understand what threatens it or how fascinating it is and how things work in this crazy foreign environment. And therefore, hopefully from that, you have these ambassadors. There was two attractions to this project. They, they came to me and they said, hey, we have this partner with Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions that work out of this place called Union Glacier. Um, which is in the West Antarctic. And they do trips to the South Pole and they um, they help people get to the South Pole. They help people climb Mount Vincent, which is the tallest peak in Antarctica. But they also facilitate operations. You know, they work with the British Antarctic Survey and other research operators there. And they said, hey, we've got these guys, we're going to Antarctica, we're going to find five people from all over the globe. And we want to do something which is which helps the research community can we collect some samples can you design a science program and as a phd student being asked can you go and collect some samples from the south pole and from the antarctica and can you design the program and then can you give some lectures on why antarctica is an important place to understand and what plastics in antarctica means can you do that for us i was like yes Yes, yeah, that sounds
0: great. <laughs> it sounds like a dream come true. So, so they approached you based on yeah. what you'd already put out there.
1: Yeah. So they they approached me through again through my supervisor because the okay yeah, yeah fabulous. So there was the connection again with like ALE and, and the British Antarctic Survey, but it was basically it had to be the British Antarctic Survey as is the case with a lot of places, they couldn't be affiliated with this project at all. Um, you know, right. they just need an individual. Yeah, so because I'm a PhD student, I was in this fortunate position where I can actually take an interruption um, and take some time out of my PhD to work on a different project. And so that's what I did. And it was hands down the most incredible and like stressful in a good way. You know, stress doesn't always have to be bad, but it was like high stress, <laughs> um, because it was a very short period of time. They came to me High in
0: intensity. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So they came to me in August and we had to have everything ready. Um, they were going out in November. So I was like, Holy, Holy moly, this is a short period of time to design some things. And then I stupidly carried on doing my PhD for a couple of months and tried to juggle all of the, you know, we had to find the five people. So that was a long process in itself.
0: Um, and it was an open call wasn't it so like anyone could apply to be these yeah. like five citizen scientists who would go down and help you with this yeah. project you're doing basically exactly. so, and th- so you were able to choose like the cream of humanity how many people applied <laughs> uh, we
1: had how many people did we have uh we had in excess of a hundred and ten thousand, and we had two weeks to find the five and that was wow. that was how like... did you
0: choose did you choose or was it airbnb so we had else?
1: five we had what we called the I can't remember exactly what the name of it. It was some sort of panel, scientific panel. Uh, Yeah, so it was myself, somebody from ALE. Uh, We partnered with a couple of institutes in Chile as well because what I kind of wanted to make sure at the start was that, you know, we have the privilege to get to Antarctica, but actually only through one of the gateway cities, through Punta Arenas, through Chile. So that actually had to form a really key part of this Antarctic sabbatical was, okay, well, let's have a cultural exchange in Chile. Let's understand what plastic pollution is in that part of the world. Let's learn the, the research that they're doing um in Antarctica. Um and so that was like that was a large proportion. I would say took up like 50% of the actual Antarctic sabbatical, and the rest of the time was in Antarctica or preparing for Antarctica. So that was really important for, for me, the kind of the longevity of the program, because it was only for a month that we were physically out there and doing things was going to be safeguarded in the fact that we had five people from five very different places in the world that had faced plastic pollution um the the problem of plastic pollution from very different perspectives you know we had somebody from india we had somebody from norway someone from inland america so in arizona we had somebody from hawaii and we had somebody who uh, lived in dubai and had never seen snow before
0: so wow incredible so (laughs) <laughs> yeah and so the, the, i imagine that was one of the best parts right seeing them seeing their experience in antarctica
1: that that was it that was incredible and actually it was the so we designed it in a way that to so design the program was really really fun um because we wanted to say okay well fr- from the start i wouldn't have taken on the project if i didn't think that our kind of our ideas for it aligned. And from the start I said I think we should partner with like our plastics pollution NGO or something, which means that they can educate on the broader plastic pollution problem. I, I can be there to design the the Antarctic element of of how we're going to collect the data, how what we're going to do in the field, where we're going to go in the field and, and show them, you know, we we built a makeshift lab in one of the shipping containers at the at the field site there. And um, I showed them how to collect samples. They went out and they collected the samples and we went back and we prepared them. But it was really important that we had a partner that could also keep putting this into the wider context. And Airbnb said they wanted that exactly, uh,
0: exactly too. And we wanted to work with the Ocean Conservancy. And so we got those guys on board. Again, another stunning partner to have mm-hmm. just casually on your CV resume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And they were just... They were amazing working with them. Um, and the, we had one of the, we had lots of video calls and we also had one of them come out to Chile, um, and do part of the, the lecture series there. And we built toolkits afterwards. So we had the kind of the two weeks before, which was doing some citizen science projects and engagement in Chile and Torres del Pane, but I wasn't there for that period. So there was this two week period where they were doing more. Kind of a cultural exchange and connecting with people in Chile. And then I came out and kind of turned the conversation to, okay, let's get ready for Antarctica. We prepared the field, like we prepared for field work and we did a lecture series for a week. And then I headed out and kind of headed out a couple of days early to sort of prep the ground, so to speak, and get the lab set up. And then they came out. And then when we came back, we connected with the ocean conservancy again and basically built these toolkits of, okay, What's your job? What kind of community do you live in? What, how, you know, how is plastic pollution perceived in the country and the region and the local community that you exist in? And, and what do you want to do and how can we help you? And it was really different, you know. So we did have a lecturer in Hawaii who said, oh, I want to connect to the island states. Uh, so the Alliance of Small islands, like the Pacific states more specifically, and say, you know, I want to do some wider beach cleanups and connect and have a network there. And then we had, um, Tia, who's from Arizona. She said, people don't think about plastic pollution in the ocean when you live in Arizona. I want to do some river cleanups and I want to talk about recycling in my local workplace. And then you had Vivek, who's in India, and he said, you know, there's no point in people doing cleanups here. We don't have a proper waste management system. I want to educate children. And that's what he does. Anyway, he's like, how can I present on this work and, and give it to school ministers? There back in India. So it was just approaching it from so many different spheres so many, of influence. Six, six, six. So many yeah. good
0: things you could do with it. So much potential. Yes. Yeah. Wow. What a fabulous project to just have dropped <laughs> in yeah. the middle of your PhD. Okay, now we come to the next part of the show, which I like to call the polar plug. And that is just where our guests are given two minutes to talk about whatever they would like. So, you know, whether that's their favorite polar fact or a project that they're working on right now or whatever is in their sphere of influence. So two minutes, Kirsty, take it away.
1: Thanks Jack. So it's just a quick plug really and because we've been talking about plastics I thought it was pretty appropriate to mention again the Ocean Conservancy. They do a lot of work. They're based out of Washington DC. They're a non-profit and they basically look at any issues which threaten our oceans. And obviously plastic pollution is a major one of these and they have a program called Trash Free Seas. So if you go to their website, you can have a look at all of their things they're doing in terms of educating around plastic pollution and also they have an app Now, I would highly, highly recommend it's free to download. You can get it off um, if you've got an Apple or Android, and it's called the Clean Swell app. So next time you go for a beach clean or even a river cleanup, you know, you don't have to be near the coast. Take your phone with you and take this app with you, and you can basically record all of the different types of trash that you pick up, and then that feeds into their mega database. They have a Trash Free Seas report that they release every year that gives you a breakdown of all of the different um, data that people have collected around the world and I think they've collected somewhere or recorded somewhere in the region of 150,000 tons of trash through this app so it's really really helpful you know so if you're doing your best to do a bit of a cleanup even if you're out walking the dog all you have to do is log it on this and, um, and that helps towards collecting this data which is really important for driving policies to protect that ocean.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Kirsty. That sounds great. Um, I know The Ocean Conservancy uh, from doing beach cleans, and I'm sure that app is great because they do a fabulous uh, infographic. They're really good at their digital uh, you know, data communication, aren't they? Yeah, they're so. really good at <laughs>
1: schools as well. For teachers that want to sort of get some quick um, tidbits and little pieces of information, they have some really, really nice graphics. And they also do um, their international coastal cleanup every september i don't know what that's going to look like this year with covid but hopefully it'll just be as, as successful and you can set up your own clean coastal cleanup they have just loads and loads of information and support that they can offer you online
0: okay fab there you go get get out there and get uh, beach river nature cleaning why not <laughs> it's it's so easy and anyone can do it can't they exactly. so fabulous Okay, excellent. That's all we have time for, I'm afraid, today on Polar Times. But please join us again next week. Uh, I have been uh, Jack Buckingham, your host today. and My guest has been Kirsty Jones-Williams. Thank you, Kirsty, for joining us. It's Thank been you. It's excellent been excellent to have you.
1: Thank
0: you. Awesome. So if you would like to uh, get in contact with us, and if you have any questions for a polar scientist, or if you would like to recommend someone to come on our podcast, you can reach us through APEX, which is the Association of Polar Scientists early career scientists and they are on twitter at polar underscore research and um, yeah don't forget to uh, like rate and subscribe and leave us a nice review on, on any of your podcast apps and join us again next week for more polar content please note that
1: whilst this is an apex production the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.